Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight, and uh, thank you for your patience. We're just fashionably late, right? Is... Thank you for coming tonight. I, I hope that tonight is a blessing to you. Uh, let's bow as we uh, begin our study tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to come and to meet together as your people. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that you've given us to be your royal priests and to draw near to you and you to draw near to us. Father, I pray that you would bless our time of study tonight. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of prayer and being able to come into your presence with our requests and our concerns. And we pray that as we pray uh, and lift these requests up to you tonight, that your name would be exalted, that you would uh, accomplish your will uh, through them. And uh, so, Father, we just ask your blessings upon this time. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Tonight, we move forward into chapter 17, which is uh, continuing the story of the priesthood of Israel. And tonight's chapter in chapter 17 is more specifically looking at the, the job, the functions, the priests at work in their daily activities, uh, especially in the tabernacle and the temple in that Old Testament sacrificial system. And one of the things he points out at the beginning is that priests are unique in the sense that in the Old Testament, they came before the kings and the prophets, at least in an official way. And so uh, you didn't have the first king of Israel until Saul. And then David and his dynasty moves forward. Uh, the first, you might could say that Moses was like the first prophet. And so in that sense, Moses would predate the official priesthood. But uh, for the prophets who are called of God that follow kind of in Moses's footsteps, they come after the priesthood, like Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and the later prophets. And so he says, because the priests have this kind of initial role with the people, toward the beginning, they take on several functions that later the, the king or the prophet would have. And so the priest kind of served as a multifaceted role toward the beginning of their institution. And one of the things that he does uh, toward uh, uh, throughout the chapter is he lays out the structure of the chapter around four uh, main ideas regarding the priesthood. One is the fact that they are sanctified. The second is their role in the sacrificial system, the sacrifices that they would offer on behalf of the people, uh, the special holy days and feasts that they would oversee, and then the specific blessings that they were entrusted with by God to pronounce upon the people. And so we'll just take a few minutes for each of those ideas. The first uh, idea is that of being sanctified which the idea of sanctification, being sanctified, is something that we've talked about recently as we've walked through this book. And it's the idea of holiness. It's the idea of being set apart. And with regard to the priesthood, the idea of being specifically set apart for this ministry in this official role of a mediator between God and his people. And so it was a special ministry, and therefore they were specially set apart, distinct for this ministry. 
Uh, one of the things that's also distinct about the priests is that the way that they would live is they would live off of the offerings and off of the gifts of the people. And so the priests did not have their own uh, allotment of land, like the whole tribe of Levi did not have their own allotment of land like the rest of the tribes of Israel. And so God allotted them cities scattered throughout Israel within the other tribes. And so they didn't have their own land. They were pretty much dependent on the people. And so the rest of the people would bring their offerings or sacrifices uh, the priests were able to eat a portion of the meat from these sacrifices that would come in. Uh, also, the people would bring other gifts for the support of the tabernacle or later the temple. And that was a part of uh, the priestly livelihood. He makes this statement. He says, what the people gave to the Lord, the Lord shared with the priests and the Levites. That's how he blessed them. And I mentioned that they didn't have an inheritance of land. Specifically, the Bible says that their inheritance is the Lord himself. And so we read in Numbers 18, verse 20, The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. You might think, well, they got gypped. You know, they didn't get a land, an inheritance of land, but... This statement is actually quite incredible. They got more than the rest of the Israelites got because they got the Lord and specifically the ability to be nearest the presence of the Lord in serving him in the tabernacle and temple. And so they were viewed as um, that this was their inheritance, a, a special relationship with God in this role. And he says this kind of foreshadows what Jesus tells his disciples a little bit later on. He says, when you get the Lord, you get everything else thrown in. And in the gospel of Luke, Jesus says this to his disciples, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he says, um, blessed are the meek. Isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the whole earth. So right now in this life, our inheritance is the Lord. But in the heavens and the new earth to come, we get it all. We get the kingdom is what Jesus is saying to his people. And so the, the priests were set apart and they were sp set apart specifically by a special uh, service of ordination or consecration. And as a part of this specific ceremony of setting them apart, they would go through a ceremonial cleansing, being purified, which uh, they were washing their hands or their feet, but it was symbolic of more, wasn't it? It was symbolic of their being purified, cleansed ceremonially for work in the presence of the Lord. And so they would go through this cleansing. They would be um, investiture. They would be uh, robed with the priestly garments that set them apart and designated them as holy. They were specifically anointed with oil and thus set apart for the task of the priesthood and this ministry. 
And um, later on, we will learn of a special anointed one, the Messiah, who would come to do the Lord's work. But the idea of anointing is one who is set apart by God. His, this oil of anointing was God's stamp on them of ownership, really, of, of setting them apart for his ministry. And also as a part of this ordination consecration service, there were sacrifices that were made for the priests to purify them, to cleanse them, to make them blameless in the sight of the Lord before then they would minister on behalf of the people. And so sacrifices were made for them. Specifically, a sin offering was made for the forgiveness of their sins. A burnt offering of the whole animal being consumed as a symbol of total consecration, devotion to the Lord. Uh, There was a specific ordination offering of the priests being set apart unto God. And there would also be a food offering of grain, of food being brought before the Lord. And then as a part of that, the priest then would share a meal at the entrance of the tabernacle, which was a sign or a symbol of the Lord's hospitality of the priest dwelling in his presence. And he makes this statement. He says, the ordination service was for the male offspring of Aaron, but we know where the story is going. All God's people were soon to be included in this ordination process. Thinking about it from the big picture, biblical theological perspective now that we too have been called priests of the Lord. He says the details of the service look different for us because all these sacrifices have been condensed into the work of Jesus. But the rhythm of life for the Aaronic priesthood continues to be the rhythm of our lives. And he gives us four ways that our our life kind of in Christ parallels that of the priesthood. He says the priests were cleansed from sin. We see through those sacrifices and through the ceremonial washings, we too have been cleansed from sin in Christ. Devoted to the Lord, uh, the priests were set apart, sanctified, consecrated to God, especially for his service. We too are devoted to the Lord in the sense, not only are we to be devoted to the Lord and give him all of our heart, soul, and mind, but also we have been set apart by God. We belong to him and are thus devoted to the Lord. The priests were thankful for the Lord's provision and shared in that provision in the presence of the Lord in that meal at the entrance of the tabernacle. And uh, they are blessed by his fellowship and care. And he says those aspects of the priesthood parallel our life in Christ now as well as priests of the living God. And so sanctified, set apart for this role. And then he looks at the various sacrifices that the priests uh, were, that they would uh, make on behalf of the people that was a part of their work. And he describes some of the division of duties where you have really a large group of priests and they would serve different functions that were decided by lot. You know, some would take care of the table of showbread. Some would take care of the lampstand and the, the lighting of the candles. Others would take care of the, the incense altar, the burning of incense. And so they had these different roles and functions. But some, their lot fell upon specifically 
the, the offering of sacrifices. And there were several sacrifices you can read about in the books of the law. So one, you have a daily burnt offering in which on the altar all night long, there is an offering that is burning with this aroma rising to the Lord. And he says that even while the people slept, the Lord was actively making a way for his presence to remain in the camp. So God's uh, wrath, if you will, against sinful people was being assuaged by this sweet smelling aroma of sacrifice continually burning before him. And then you had daily morning and afternoon services in which there were sacrifices that would be made. And then throughout the day and throughout the week, people would come to the priests to make sacrifices, whether for sin, if they needed forgiveness of sin, or if they just wanted to bring an offering of devotion to the Lord, a free will offering. And so the priests would be called upon to oversee these offerings throughout at any time of the day, you know, and throughout the week. He says, uh, to make an animal sacrifice, the people would come, the worshiper would lay their hands on the animal, and it would be killed near the entrance of the tabernacle. He says everything was up close, participatory and personal. They, the, the worshiper, the one bringing the sacrifice, was personally involved in the killing and the shedding of blood of that animal and laying his hands on it, signifying the transfer of guilt really from himself to the animals, a representative sacrifice. And there are many different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. He suggests that we can kind of group them under two broad headings. Uh, One is the burnt offering, which could include uh, the burnt offering itself, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And these all involved blood of animals and were for the forgiveness of sins, for purification, uh, possibly also just as expressions of devotion to God, such as in the whole burnt offering being offered to the Lord. And then the other main category, we might say, are peace offerings, which would include uh, the food type offerings, uh, offerings related to vows, uh, free will offerings and wave offerings. Uh, these would be offerings just that the people willingly brought before the Lord and would express personal devotion to the Lord and perhaps even a reconciliation of fellowship with the Lord. And so we have all of these different kinds of sacrifices that the priests would oversee. And he says all of this, this whole system created a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it was God's plan for meeting with his people. Did the sacrifices earn God's favor? No, but they were in recognition of what God had done and would do. And they were effective because of his mercy. And the daily rhythm was gradually inculcated into the hearts of the priests and the people. So it's not as if we know this from the book of Hebrews, that We know that the blood of bulls and of goats cannot really atone for sin. But what was the purpose of them? The purpose of them was, I think, several fold. One, to show the people how serious sin is. That sin and a a payment for sin required death. 
and required the shedding of blood. And it showed them how holy God was, that to come into the presence of God or for God even to be in their camp, they had to come before him through sacrifice and through atonement. And really this whole system, as he says, was God's way of showing mercy to them. They, they didn't deserve God's presence. They didn't deserve to have the holy God of the universe among them. But God chose in grace and mercy to be among them. And this was his method of them being able to draw near to God. And we also know that it was all uh, provisional, isn't it? So it, it taught the people certain things about the seriousness of, his, of their sin, the infinite holiness of God, but also it was pointing forward. They were provisional and symbolic, pointing forward to an ultimate sacrifice to come. And he says all of this was preparing the hearts and, and building into their hearts uh, the importance of daily worshiping God and of that being a part of their lives. And so like the priests, the people of Israel were cleansed from sin through these sacrifices. They were devoted to the Lord. They were thankful for the Lord's provision as evidenced in some of the food and grain offerings. And they were blessed by his fellowship and care, especially when the priest would pronounce a blessing upon the people. And then he talks about the holy days, special days that were set apart in the life of Israel. And so we have common days and we have holy days. Remember a couple of chapters back, we talked about the difference between uh, the common and the holy. And even within the common, you had the clean and the unclean. And so there were certain days, certain times of the year that were set apart as specifically holy. And they were to be regarded as such and shown to be holy through how you lived your life those days, through your activities. And those holy days, as we see throughout scripture, tended to, to be in cycles of seven. So we have the obvious one of Sabbath, right? Where the Sabbath happens every seventh day in the weekly cycle. And that began at creation. Uh, we also have the day of atonement, which is once a year, but happens in the seventh month of th their year. Uh, we have the year for releasing debts is the sabbatical year. So every seventh year, there would be the releasing of debts and also uh, allowing the land to rest from the growing of crops. Uh, you have the year of Jubilee, which is essentially seven cycles of seven or seven sabbatical cycles, seven sabbatical years times seven. The year following that is the year of Jubilee. So we have these holy days in cycles of seven. And then we also have specific feasts and festivals that would happen throughout the year. Uh, probably the, the one that comes to our minds first when we think about Israelite feasts and festivals is the Passover. The Passover happened in the first month of the year. And so it was their first festival. It uh, celebrated their freedom from Egypt. It uh, remembered the Lord's provision for them of them being redeemed uh, by the Lord's grace through the sacrifice of a, of a lamb and its blood being applied. And they were allowed to be saved, rescued from 
from Egypt. And that one day of Passover began a week of festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of first fruits. Uh, then you have the second festival of the year, which was seven weeks later and a day. So you have 50. And that was the Feast of Weeks, later on known as Pentecost. And so in Acts chapter 2, when we see the apostles all gathered and the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost, that was an Israelite feast. It was 50 days after Passover when they were all gathered together celebrating that feast and the Holy Spirit came down. The third festival in the seventh month uh, began uh, with the Feast of Trumpets in preparation for the Day of Atonement, which was 10 days later. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month was also the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles, which also lasted a full week. And the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, kind of a remembrance of their time in the wilderness of living in tents. And he says all of these marked throughout the year special sacrifices, times of rest, uh, devoting themselves to the Lord in worship, and particular remembrances of the Lord's special and mighty acts on behalf of his people. And so their lives, just the normal rhythm and pattern of their lives, whether it be on a, a weekly basis with the Sabbath every week or throughout the year with these uh, festivals, even their lives through the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, their whole lives revolved around God's mighty acts of redemption for them and God's provision for them, making them his people. The Sabbath was, though, probably the, the, one of the most prominent of these special days in the Old Testament uh, life cycle. It happened once a week, and so it was fresh on their minds every week. And it began with creation. We have six days of creation and God setting aside the seventh day as holy. And he makes the comment uh, that this was the only thing in all of creation that was specifically declared holy. It was all good. It was all very good. But the seventh day was marked as holy. He says this, uh, on the Sabbath, God rested. And he invites us to rest with him. This is not so much that everyone takes a nap on the Sabbath. The point is that we don't have to work. So we have time to meet with the Lord and he meets with us. The point is shalom or peace, not sleep. So he says the, the essence of Sabbath is dwelling with the Lord in a relationship of peace and spending time with him by not having to be distracted by work. He says one of the remarkable things about the introduction of the Sabbath into the life of Israel is that this new thing of a day off, a day of rest every week was granted to people who had spent all their lives in slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine that gift that a Sabbath day would have meant to these people of being worked to the bone every single day of their lives, no day off at all, 
and now they're being granted as a gift from God every week. I want you to take a whole day where you do nothing and just rest and remember what I've, what I've given you. And so with the Sabbath, God essentially proclaimed that his people were not slaves anymore, but a royal priesthood. So even the gift of the Sabbath, in a sense, elevates them to a new status. On the Sabbath, we also have not only a time of rest, of meeting with the Lord, but it's an expression of trust in and dependence upon the Lord. And we see this especially with the gift of manna because this was really their first exposure to the concept of Sabbath was when God granted them the manna and for six days they were to go out and gather it in. But on the seventh day, they were told not to. So on the sixth day, God would provide double, but on the seventh day, there wouldn't be any manna on the ground. They were just to trust God. Trust God that there would be enough on the sixth day to carry them through the seventh day so they could rest. And so it was a a time also to trust in God. He says this meant that they were to trust in the Lord's care for them more than in the work of their hands. Trust is essential to a relationship. So if they were going to have faith in God, they needed to show that, demonstrate that through the weekly Sabbath of depending on him for their care. Then you also had Sabbath at harvest time. Imagine the trust, the faith that needed to be given to God during when the Sabbath fell during a time of harvest. Anyone who's ever grown crops knows you've got a window, right? You've got a window of time to get that in and to to harvest that crop. Well, what happens if the prime day for harvesting falls on the Sabbath day? You rest. You rest and you trust God that he will provide. And so it was a test of faith for them. He says the Sabbath was a good test for the soul. Trust does not come naturally. Self-interest does. The Sabbath was an opportunity to say that all things come from the Lord, dependent on him that he will watch over us. The Sabbath also distinguished God's people from their neighbors because this was a special gift that God gave to Israel. The Old Testament calls the Sabbath a sign of God's covenant with Israel. And so it set them apart from those around them. We see in the Gospels many, many times where Jesus had interactions with the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. And in many of those instances, we see Jesus reclaiming the Sabbath from the Pharisees' legalistic burdens that they placed on the people. And it's in that context that we read a verse like Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. And so opposite the Pharisees' legalistic burdens, Jesus says, I offer you the real Sabbath of rest. And so in the Gospels, on the Sabbath is a marker that something important is about to happen. Jesus had come close. Life was breaking in. Heaven was piercing earth and death was being pushed aside. Withered hands were being healed. Disciples were being fed. The Sabbath was a time for blessing, not burdens. He says, really, in the time of Jesus, we see what the Sabbath was really all about. 
It's not just a day for rest, but it's a day for blessing of God blessing us and blessing one another. And really of the restoration that will happen in the new age in the kingdom of God. Like he says, withered hands being healed, blind being able to see on the Sabbath day. It's really a window into what the new heavens and new earth will be. In a sense, the new heavens, new earth will be like a continual Sabbath in the presence of God being blessed by him. And then after the time of Jesus and the early church, we have the first day of the week in remembrance of the Lord's resurrection being set aside as a time for worship and for rest. And so the Sabbath reminds us that rest and peace can only be found in the Lord of the Sabbath. In Jesus really is our ultimate rest. So you have the Sabbath and then the day of atonement is really the day that dominated the, the calendar year. So if Sabbath dominated the weekly calendar, the day of atonement dominated the yearly calendar. And on this day, it was the only day when the curtain to the most holy place was lifted for one representative of the people, the high priest, to go in. And it was the holiest of holy days. So you had all these special days, all these special feasts throughout the year, but the Day of Atonement was like the Holy of Holies, if you will, of the days on the calendar. And it was somber. It was to be sober. It was a day of fasting rather than feasting. And so on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, would take a bull and a ram. And these two animals specifically were offered as a sin offering and a burnt offering for the high priest himself and his family. So before the high priest did anything for the people, this ram and bull were offered for him and his family before he went in to the presence of the Lord. And then he would take two goats for the rest of the people of Israel as a whole. One of them would be slain and offered as a sacrifice like the bull and the ram and its blood taken in to the Holy of Holies. But then there was also one that was set aside as what we might call a scapegoat. They would, the high priest would symbolically lay his hands on this goat and someone would would take this goat way out into the wilderness, far away from the camp where it could never find its way back to the camp. And it was symbolic of the people's sins and their guilt being transferred to this animal and their sins being taken out of the camp, removed as far as the east is from the west. And so we have on the day of atonement, this statement on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. And then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. What a marvelous declaration that is, isn't it? On this day, you are clean from all of your sins. They are forgiven. And we know ultimately that that's a picture of what Christ would do forever in his life and death and sacrifice. He says so many spiritual realities were crammed into this day, this day of atonement. Sin was purged by a substitute acceptable to the Lord. Blood was sprinkled to bring life to people who had been polluted and the wandering goat 
took sins as far as the east is from the west as a way to illustrate how far God removes his people from their sins. God was making a way to get closer, to draw near to his people. And I like how he says this. He says to use Genesis language, a new Adam could go past the cherubim that guarded the presence of God. The day of atonement assured the people that intimacy with the Lord was still the plan, but it would happen gradually. And so the fellowship that was cut off when God expelled Adam and Eve from Eden is being restored through a high priest being drawn in to the presence of God on behalf of the people. And so as we bring these holy days into the present, think about them in our context, what is most obvious is that our sins are our deepest and most profound problem. Our ceremonies are so different from the ancient world, aren't they? From the ancient Israelites. The way we worship, the way we sing hymns, the way we do our worship is so night and day different from the Old Testament Israelites. But there's this one thing that is common, and that is our biggest problem is our sin. Their biggest problem was sin, and that's why all these uh, ceremonies and symbols were necessary as a part of God's plan. We too need our sins dealt with. So our sins are our most profound problem. He says our struggles with money, broken relationships, and poor health will be over when we see Jesus. But our sins have eternal implications unless they are sprinkled with the cleansing blood of the Lamb. So Jesus fulfills all of those types and pictures. But our problem is still the same, and we need Jesus, just like they needed those sacrifices in the Old Testament to draw near to God. And so all modern day priests, he's talking about us now, we as God's believers, as modern day priests, therefore should be able to identify personal sins. We could put this more strongly. To be fully human is to know our sins, to know that the sacrifice of Jesus has taken our our sins away from the presence of God and to do battle against ongoing temptations. He says, that's our role now as God's priests. To identify our sins, to know that our sins have been forgiven in Christ and to daily do battle with those sins and temptations. So we have, um, they're sanctified, the sacrifices, the holy days. And then the last thing he talks about in the chapter is blessing. The priestly story is that of God reclaiming us bringing us close and blessing us. The Lord is not under compulsion to show us this kindness. He blesses us because it is his nature. He is inclined to bless. He has made a way to deal with sin so he can bless. And we certainly need his blessing. And so he says to bless is simply to show favor. God blesses by showing his favor and grace upon us. We are blessed when we experience that favor, the happiness, the joy that that favor brings. He says, when God speaks words over his creation, his creative power is put to work. Life appears. This happens with the earth, the sky, the seas, and with us. Blessing is God's procreative power being brought to our lives. 
It is necessary for us if we are to live as he intends. So he says, Jesus tells his disciples in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so Jesus comes to give his people blessing, abundant life. And now we, having been blessed by the Lord, have been invited by God to speak his blessings on others. One of the roles that we see of the priests in Old Testament Israel is that God entrusts them with the, the ability to bless, to pronounce blessings on God's people. And he says, now we are the priests. We have been called as priests of God. And so we are also called to bless others in Jesus' name. And so one of the passages that I speak over us almost every Sunday from Numbers chapter 6 The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. He suggests that this phrase, the Lord bless you and keep you, means that he is close to us. And as Psalm 121 describes, he is close enough to shade us from the sun. He is always there, always alert and protecting our very life. The phrase, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. He says the lampstand is in view as well as the light that is characteristic of his presence. The blessing is that you would know his rescue when you are overwhelmed. And he says, Psalm 80 really shows us this idea of the Lord shining his face on us. In Psalm 80, verse three, restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. The idea of God's face shining on us is his grace and mercy of rescue. So, when that blessing says the Lord make his face shine on you, it really is the idea of may the Lord show you grace and favor and deliver you, be your rescuer. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The Lord is telling us that he sees and hears us. The face of the father is toward his children. And by his gentle care, he will make things right and give deep and lasting peace. That last phrase of that blessing, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That, that idea of the Lord's face being directed toward us is the idea of the restoration of relationship. Of him now looking on us with acceptance and welcome. That can only happen in Christ. Only in Christ can we have this peace with God. That's what Paul says in Romans, doesn't he? Now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God looks on us as his children through the lens of peace because of Christ. And so we have been called to bless others in the name of Jesus. This is a premier feature of our priestly calling. And so as we finish our time tonight, 
one of the thoughts that I had in reading and thinking about tonight's lesson is how many times have we read these things in the Old Testament, like from Leviticus and Numbers, and read about the priestly job description and thought, well, what does that have to do with me? And that's one of the things that he wants to do in this study is to remind us that now because we are priests, we are a royal priesthood, Peter says, that some of what God has entrusted to them in Leviticus and Numbers, obviously things have changed now because Christ has come, but some of those ceremonies and sacrifices and holy days, they point to something deeper that is still there, that is still operative for us as priests of the living God. And so may we try to look through the ceremonies and the sacrifices and see those fulfilled in Christ, but then try to see the underlying thing that God is doing there and drawing people near and using those people then to bless others. So may we see ourselves, maybe more than we usually do in reading those books of Leviticus and Numbers and see how they apply to us now as the Lord's priests. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had just to think about the way that you worked through your people in the Old Testament, through Moses and Aaron and their descendants, and how you used the family line of Aaron as priests to bless the people by drawing them near and ultimately through them drawing all of your people near to you that you might be with them and be their God. Father, thank you for the study in which we've seen different ways in which that Old Testament priesthood and some of the principles there apply to us now as your children, as priests of the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we uh, draw near to you. May we always be mindful of the fact that we can draw near through the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Uh, may we be reminded of how serious our sin is and how infinite your holiness is. Uh, may we be thankful that uh, reconciliation has been made for us. And Lord, may we be used as your instruments of grace and blessing in the lives of others. Father, I pray that this study would continue to be helpful and encouraging to us as we walk through it. Uh, Lord, may the truth of your word shine through it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.